to seek God's favor on those who insult us. He says that's if you're in Christ, that's your calling. That's what you're called to is to bless other people and not to curse them, despite the fact that they may curse you. And that's so challenging because we live in a tit for tat world. Quid pro quo. You may be familiar with uh, with Newton's third law, in case it's been a minute since you studied physics. Uh, Newton's third law is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And we adapt that for human interaction. For every negative action of yours, it calls for an escalating and greater reaction from me. That's the natural way of things. That's how we do business. And Peter says that for those who follow Jesus, our calling is right the opposite. So how do we do that? Today, Peter is going to show us what that can look like. First, Peter three, verses 13 through 22. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive of the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? And let's ask for his help in understanding it. Father, there are some clear things here, and there are some unclear things here. And so we pray that you would use what is clear to help us understand what is unclear that you would teach us, that you would show us our Savior Jesus, that we would trust in him, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a bit of a strange passage, especially those few verses. Well, we, we like preaching through whole books of the Bible here at Grace Fellowship. We try to go verse by verse, passage by passage. And unfortunately, that means that sometimes you have to preach 
uh, verses like this one that aren't particularly clear. And it just so happens that uh, we let go the intern that I would usually give these things to. So uh, it falls falls to me. Um, so how do we handle confusing things in the Bible? We, we believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's infallible, uh, that he gives it to us for our benefit. But that doesn't mean that all the parts of the Bible are alike clear. Uh, and so what we do then is we use those parts that are clear to interpret those parts that are not. We call that scripture. We use scripture to interpret scripture. We use uh, the places where the Bible speaks plainly uh, to help us interpret the areas where we are confused. And this is confusing. Uh, Martin Luther, the, the priest who began the Protestant Reformation, says that this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Uh, that even he didn't understand what Peter was talking about. So, there you go. I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, but if people like Martin Luther said, oh, no, then there you go. All right. Um, but what we want to do, right, is we want to, let's look at what Peter is doing in this letter, what Peter's trying to do generally. If we can maybe get a sense of what the forest, let's look at the forest before we go to the trees. Uh, and, and what is the big picture? What does Peter want to get across? And here's what I think he wants to get across. He's trying to tell these people and us that you can live with hope even when you face unjust suffering. That's what's happening uh, in, to, in the context in which Peter is writing. Uh, they are Christians who are facing unjust persecution or the possibility of it from their unbelieving neighbors. And so Peter is writing to encourage them that even in the midst of unjust suffering, you can live with hope. So we're going to look at this under three headings. First, he tells us that we are blessed in suffering. Uh, second, he shows us what it looks like to live with hope. And then third, he grounds it all in some reasons for hope. So first, blessed in suffering. Let's, let's clarify what's happening here, right? We, we go through different kinds of suffering in life. Um, there's general suffering, so disease, disability, those sorts of things, they happen, to, they happen to good people, they happen to bad people, Christians, non-Christians, right? It's part of life in a fallen world. That's just general suffering. That's not what Peter is addressing here. We also go uh, through, we might say, deserved suffering. This is suffering that we bring on ourselves through sin and foolishness, the consequences for our action. And this, too, impacts both Christians and non-Christians, even even if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven of your sin. That doesn't necessarily mean you won't face consequences this side of heaven. That there are sometimes you'll, you'll have to deal with the, the results of your own choices, the consequences of your sin. That also is not what Peter is talking about here. What Peter is talking about here is unjust suffering. Or as he says in verses 13 and 14, suffering for doing good. Uh, suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, he asked that question, who is there? Uh, oh, I lost my page. Here we go. Uh, who is there to harm you, to do evil to you, if you are zealous or if you are eager to do what is good? 
Now that tells us that this is not uh, that, that Christianity at this point has not been uh, officially persecuted. It's not illegal. The government is not persecuting Christians. And so at this point, suffering is not a um, it's not a have to. Right. It may be around the bend, but at this point, it's just an option. Uh, it's, it's something that might happen. And so Peter says, as long as you're doing good, who is there who can harm you? Now, Peter may also mean something else by that. He may mean, hey, listen, as long as you are following Jesus, then who can really do you any harm? Right? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. But Peter says, even if, even if you should suffer for doing good, here's what you need to know. You are blessed. In fact, Peter wants us to be so, so sure of that. If you, uh, if, you look, if you were to look in the Greek New Testament, uh, the, the phrase, you will be, is not there. Uh, English translation, English works differently than Greek, and so uh, translators often have to add some words here and there to help it make sense to us. But literally what Peter says is, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, blessed. That's your status. Blessed. To be blessed means to, uh, it could be translated happy. It means that God is smiling upon you. That his favor rests upon you. So I want you to catch just how ironic that is. Peter says, even if you're suffering, you need to know you are blessed. Now, why does he need to say that? Because suffering does not feel like blessing. In fact, it feels like right the opposite, doesn't it? Um, you see, we're all, we're all functional Hindus. We may not be professing Hindus, but we're functional Hindus in the sense that we live by karma and not by grace. What, is, what does karma say? Karma says, well, if I, if I do all the right things and I make all the right decisions, then this will be my eternal outcome. To use Christianese, I will be blessed. Now, can we say things like, God has blessed me with a good husband? Yes. Can we say, God has blessed me with a good job? Yes, that, that's, that's entirely appropriate. God does show his blessing in giving us good things. But here's where we have to be careful. The opposite side of karma says, if I do bad, or rather, if, if things are not going well for me, it must mean that I have done bad. And it must mean that God is not smiling upon me. Therefore, I am cursed. And that's living by karma and not by grace. Because Peter says, listen, if you're facing unjust suffering, you may think God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. He has left me. And so Peter wants you to know, no, 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 no. God knows you. God sees you. God hears you. And he smiles upon you. You are blessed. God wants us to know that because sometimes you do suffer for doing good. Sometimes you do the right thing and the wrong thing is the result. And so Peter wants us to not worry 
He wants us to know that we are blessed. And so if that's true, how then should we live? What does it look like for us to live with hope in that reality? And there are four things under point two uh, that Peter mentions. First, he says in uh, verse 14 that we should replace fear of man with honor for Jesus. Look at 14. He said that the last part of 14, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid of their hostility. Don't be stirred up. Don't be shaken up. Don't be disturbed. Instead, he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word there he uses is the same word that Jesus teaches us to use in the Lord's Prayer when he says, hallow your name. It's that word, hallow. It means to treat someone as worthy of honor and glory and respect. Do you see the, the contrast between those two, between fear of man and honoring Christ? Counselor Ed Welch uh, wrote a book a number of years ago uh, titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. We get that, and, and K.O. led us in repentance in that this morning, right? We, we flip that. Uh, when Jesus is small to me, then other people become big. And when other people are big to me, then I become scared and silent. And so Peter says, replace fear of man with the honor of Jesus. Remember that he is Lord. Honor him as Lord. Glorify him as Lord. Put your eyes, rest your hope. He is the sure and steady anchor. How do we do that? How do we honor Christ as Lord? We'll look at the second part of verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's a mouthful. But Peter says, we honor Christ by always being ready to give reasons for our hope. Peter assumes a couple of things in there. One, Peter assumes that Christians, those who follow Christ will engage with non-Christians. He assumes that Christians will have relationships and live around and be interacting with non-Christians. Right? We are not isolationists. We are not separatists. We do not hunker in bunkers. Right? As one scholar puts it, we live openly in unbelieving society and we are ready to explain why. That's what Peter says. Honor Christ by giving a reason for your hope. And it also assumes this, not only that we will engage with non-Christians, but Peter also assumes that we will be living in a noticeably different way. Peter assumes that something about my life, the way that I speak or type, the way that I live, will prompt my neighbor or friend or family member to say, tell me more. That we not only live openly, but we also live differently. And it causes people to say, hmm. And so, Christian, 
what is your hope? If you would name the name of Jesus, what is it that you're hoping in? What is, what is the finish line that you're racing towards? Is it, in fact, Jesus? And if your hope is in Jesus, can you explain why? Can you give reasons for the hope that you have in Christ? If you would say, gosh, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Right, we, we want to move from the place where we say, well, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm a Christian because I grew up in, in church. That's just what, that's just what we do. I'm a, I'm a Christian, you know, because good, that's what good people do. Friend, none of those are reasons for hope. Can we explain the reasons that we have for our hope in Christ? That why we have, why he is our sure and steady anchor. Why our lives are bound to his. And why we are running headlong towards him. Can we explain that? And then a third way, and these all go together, right? We replace fear of man with honor for Jesus. We honor Jesus by always being ready to speak of our hope. And then thirdly, when we speak of our hope, last part of verse 15, we do it with gentleness and respect. Gentle. Meek. It's the word that Jesus uses to describe himself. In Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. It means that we're not pushy or demanding. We're not seeking to aggressively overpower people. We're gentle and respectful. And then fourthly, the result of all of that, verse 16, is that we would have a good conscience. That our conscience would be clear before God. Look at verse 16. So that, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who insult your good behavior, that word for behavior is one of Peter's favorite words, it's conduct, your way of life. When people insult your good way of life, they'll be put to shame, not not embarrassed. We're not seeking to embarrass people. He's simply pointing out that there will be nothing to say, that people will aim to insult you and slander you. But when the proof is brought out, there ends up being nothing there. That's what it means to have a good conscience before God. It does not mean sinless perfection. It does not mean uh, that we will get everything right and never do anything wrong. It does mean that we are striving to obey God, follow Jesus, conform our lives to his. And it means that when we screw up, we are quick to repent. We are quick to own it, not just before God, but before those whom we've offended. In fact, I don't know what could be a better testimony of the grace of God. Maybe even better than our holiness is our ability and our willingness to repent when we do wrong. 
I don't know if anything would commend the grace of God and the gospel better than our humility and repentance and faith. How did Christianity spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire? Before it was legalized in the 300s, it was very costly. Uh, From Peter's day onward, in fact, Peter himself, his second letter is written after Nero's persecution begins. History tells us that he would be crucified upside down in Rome. How did Christianity spread like wildfire through an empire that hated it and that wanted to stamp it out at every possible turn? How did people, how did this movement grow when it was so costly? It was not through well-trained evangelists and apologists. It wasn't through tent rallies and big events. It was from normal, ordinary, everyday Christians living openly and hopefully in front of their neighbors. That's how Christianity grows. In our day, we are, we are moving back, it would appear, towards a first century kind of culture. Where Christianity will be pushed into the margins. Social credibility is not what we're looking for. Will, will Christians be able to live openly and with hope even at cost to ourselves? That's what Peter calls us to. But that's a really tall order. It's hard to do something when it will cost you. So what motivates that kind of hope-filled living? Peter gives us a few reasons. First, he tells us in verse 18. Well, he says in verse 17, right? It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, because... Christ also suffered. In other words, if and when you suffer, you're in good company. The holiest, most righteous, truthful, loving, and caring man who ever lived suffered. In fact, was executed shamefully. And so to follow Christ is to follow the suffering servant. Jesus tells us as much in Mark 8, 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, if you want to learn more about what this looks like in day in, day out life, this is actually what our adult Sunday school class is about right now. Uh, studying the J-curve. By the way, we didn't plan that. We didn't plan for First Peter and the J-curve to go together. Uh, but we have those books uh, on the resource table. You can grab one on your way out. Uh, if you want to learn more about how to apply those principles and what that looks like, uh, that's the, the class that happens at this room in this room on Sunday mornings at 945. Christ also suffered. And then reason number two for hope is that Christ's suffering brings us to God. That Jesus' suffering was not wasted. It was not a dead end. In fact, Peter says, he suffered once for sins. 
the righteous, that word righteous is singular, the word unrighteous is plural, so you could read that as the righteous one for the unrighteous many. Jesus' suffering, his death, pays for our sins. He is our substitute. He suffered and died to pay the price for my sin. Here's what that tells me. My biggest problem is not inflation. My biggest problem is not that Democrats control the White House or the Senate. My biggest enemy is not Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden. My biggest enemy is sin. And my biggest problem is that my sin separates me from a holy God. And the worst thing that can happen to me is not the collapse of American society, though I don't want that to happen. The worst thing that can happen to me is that I'd be separated from God forever because of my son. Jesus died so that that would not happen. He came to close that gap and to bring us to God. And that is reason for hope. And it does not stop there. Third reason for hope, Christ also rose from the dead as conqueror. Verse 18, excuse me. Yeah, verse 18, the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, Jesus did not only die, otherwise we would have no hope. Rather, Jesus conquered death by being raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where Noah comes in. And we're out of time. Just kidding. So there, there are different interpretations of what Peter is talking about here. Um, Peter seems to be drawing on a background that we're not familiar with. But his readers would have been familiar with it. Remember, he, he writes first to them... And they would have understood and they would have been encouraged by what Peter says here. And so based on that reality, here is the interpretation that I here's here's what I think Peter is saying. Peter points us back to the time of Noah. Which have been a, would have been a time of darkness and disobedience and sin. And you have Noah and his family a small believing community in the midst of all of that darkness. And in the power of the Spirit, I think this is what he's saying, that Christ in the Spirit through Noah was preaching to Noah's generation. And you may remember that earlier uh, in chapter 1, we, saw, we heard where Christ through the Spirit preaches through the uh, prophets of the Old Testament. And so I think Peter may be referencing the same thing here, that Christ preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day. And so that for every nail Noah drove into that ark, he was saying, God's judgment is coming. For every board he fixed on that frame, Noah was saying, run to the ark. Be saved from God's judgment. And so Noah 
much like our day, right? a small believing community, Noah, Jesus through Noah preaching to the spirits in Noah's day, now in prison while Noah was saved. And that's where Peter uses baptism to draw the connection. Noah and his family did not drown in the water. Rather, they were saved through it. They were rescued out of it. They didn't go under the water. They might have gotten sprinkled a little bit in the rain. Just saying. So also, when Christian, when a, when a person receives baptism, it is a symbol of judgment avoided and rescue received. And he doesn't mean that baptism, that the external ritual is what saves you. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing when he says baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, is he's, he's drawing a close link between the ritual and what the ritual points to, which is the reality of receiving the good news, repenting and believing. Baptism, right, anytime someone is baptized, it proclaims the message of the gospel. Not that you need a clean body, but you need a clean conscience before God. And the way that you do that is you repent of your son and you trust in Jesus, just like Noah trusted in God and got in the ark. So also this morning, if you are in your sin, if you are convicted of your sin, you need to know that God's judgment is coming. Just like the flood was coming in Noah's day, so God's judgment is coming. But you can escape that judgment. Just as Noah and his family got in the ark, you can be safe in Jesus if you will trust in him. Christ rose from the dead as conqueror. And then, verse 22, the fourth reason for our hope, Christ reigns over everything even now. Not only did Christ conquer death and the resurrection, but even now he reigns over every power. He is in complete control, even in unjust suffering. Even when people come against you, even when they insult you and slander you, look, uh, the country song is wrong. Jesus does not need to take the wheel. He's already got it. His hand is firmly on it. He has never let it go. Jesus reigns even now. And if that's true, if Christ is king, then we have nothing to fear. So let me... Wrap all of this up. What, is, what does God want us to know? He wants us to know that Jesus suffered even though he was righteous. So that you and I can know God. More than that, he has risen and is reigning over all authorities. Nothing is outside of his control. That's what God wants us to know. Why? What does God want us to feel he wants us to feel confident and hopeful, blessed, favored by God, smiled upon by God. He has not left us or forsaken us. And then third, what does God want us to do? 
He wants us to hallow Christ the Lord in our hearts. We do that by not being afraid, but by being ready to explain our hope in Jesus to others. 